0: In Mark chapter 4. And I forgot to bring my reading glasses. So thankfully I've almost memorized it. Mark chapter 4 verse 35. On that day. When evening had come. He said to them. Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd. They took him. With them in the boat. Just as he was. And other boats were were with him. And a great. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you and we worship you and we praise you for this gospel that we have that can that can allow us to come to know you, the God, the creator of the universe. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Oh, Lord God, we praise you for this salvation. We praise you for forgiveness of sins. We praise you for your word. We praise you for how you keep us, how you call us, and you keep us, and you will take us on to heaven, to glorification, to glory. Lord, we've sang about it this morning, and we thank you, Lord, that in these days between Our salvation and our glorification. You are there with us in the storms of life and the things, the rough things, the hard things, the difficult things that come our way. And Lord, you have a purpose in all of these things. You have a plan. You're still in control and you love us with an everlasting love. And I pray, Father, that you would work in me and in your saints this morning through this passage. Speak to our hearts, change us, teach us the things you want us to know, oh Lord God. Help us to leave this room. Knowing in a deeper way that you do love us. Even when things look really bad. Father, I pray that you give grace. Give grace to all the hearts in this room to hear what you have to say to them. To encourage those who need to be encouraged. And to cause those to be born again who need to be born again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. In this passage, we are at the same day... Where Jesus began in chapter four, the same cha- the beginning of the day where he has uh, started out that day beside the sea and he's been preaching the parables, parables of the kingdom, to the crowds to the masses in the boat, and they're sitting on land and he's been in the boat and he's been preaching to them now it's nighttime and um, evening has come and so he says to the disciples who he's been with he's been preaching to the crowds all day long, but now he's got whole different plan. Now he's going to go from crowds to his 12 disciples, to those who are key to him. Before he's been teaching uh, parables of the kingdom to the masses. Now he's going to do a, so to speak, something I call like a historical parable. It really did happen, but Christ, the Lord of the universe, is going to orchestrate a real life situation. And through that, he's going to teach the disciples something that's very important. Disciple time, so to speak. And through this He's going to bring them... Well, he's going to teach a couple of things. One of the things he's going to do is he's going to bring them to the end of themselves. That's one of his great purposes, to bring them to the end of themselves. To teach them something of God's good purposes in our trials. And to show more clearly the essential role of faith uh, that, that faith plays in our trials. And also to show something about the glory of Jesus and his sovereignty and his lordship over storms. That's why I've called this message, Jesus, Lord of the Storms and Faith in Times of Trial. Now, I really have about 16 other subtitles I could give. I've tried to condense it into these two. Jesus, Lord of the Storms, His Sovereignty and His Power and His Control over Storms, and Faith in Times of Trial, How to Press On. Those two things are what I want to kind of look at. Now, this event does take place, this historical real event does really take place on a literal real sea, the Sea of Galilee. But in the Bible, the sea is often used as a metaphor of the principle of disorder and unrest and trouble and opposition and trials and difficulties. It's a place that is hostile to mankind for the most part, right? We have the great sea of Noah's flood that covered the earth, and that was not a nice place to be, was it? We have the Red Sea when the children of Israel are leaving Egypt, and what do they meet? Opposition, a problem, a trial, a barrier. The Red Sea is in their way. How do they get past it? And then there's Isaiah 43, and all throughout the scriptures, there's these allusions to, to, uh, to things like Isaiah 43, too, where it says, when God speaks to the nation of Israel, he says, When you pass through the waters, the waters I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you as the waters and rivers could overwhelm us, and they can. They can. And then there's that classic uh, stormy sea situation like we have in the book of Jonah, where Jonah is in a terrible, tossy, stormy sea, and And uh, it's not a nice place to be, and they're also going to be, they're afraid they're going to perish as well. That's a pretty classic example. In fact, it seems to me that Mark here in this gospel and in this account almost seems to have this storm of Jonah's in mind as he's recording this and retelling this event. It seems that Mark has the purpose to actually draw our attention to these parallels between Jonah and this situation right here. And we'll come back come back to that a little later on. Now I'm reading from the ESV version of the Bible, the English Standard Version, and I like it because it does a great job of translating the word great three times great, because the word really, it's the same Greek word. I don't know Greek, but it's something like mega or something like that, mega, which to me sounds like great, and, <laughs> and actually the ESV does translate it, to, translate it like that. There's three great, three, three great things. There's the great windstorm, and there's a great calm, And there's a great fear. And after each of these three great things is a question. The first question after the first great windstorm is, Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? That's in verse 38. And then after the great calm, there's the second question from Jesus to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then after the great fear that the disciples have because of what Jesus does in Calming the Storm, there comes another question to the disciples, to themselves basically. Who then is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man in the boat with us? And that's the basic outline I want to go through. I want to take these one by one and just look at them. And so let's begin with the great windstorm. The great windstorm. It says... Leaving the crowds, they took him. They were in the boat, just as he was. And the others, uh, they say verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. A great windstorm. I want to look quickly at the nature of this storm. And I have three basic points. One, it was sudden. Two, it was severe. And three, it was specific. A very specific windstorm. Sudden. Luke's account in Luke chapter 8 says the storm descended down on the lake. It's a very strong word, just came out of nowhere is what it basically says. just descended down upon the lake from the surrounding hills. And in this account, it's very clear. There is no, there's no sense of a sign of a storm coming on. You can bet your bottom dollar that Peter and all the other fishermen, if there would have been a cloud in the sky or anything brewing or a wind, they would have said, Jesus, uh, we can tell. We're fishermen. We've been here all of our life. There's a storm coming. They didn't say a single thing. The understanding we get from the text here is that this storm came suddenly out of the blue from nowhere, and it was very quick. Unexpected. Very much Unexpected. It was, also, it was also instantaneous, complete chaos. And that's the second thing we come to, how severe it was. Luke says, in, uh, again, in verse uh, chapter 8 of verse 20, 23, he says, they were suddenly swamped and in danger. Swamped and in danger. Here the text says that the waves are breaking into the boat, and the boat was filling up quickly, severely. This is a hurricane force situation on the little Sea of Galilee. They finally cry out and say, Jesus, we are perishing. This is no exaggeration. These are experienced sailormen. They're not saying this just for dramatic effect. They really think they're going to die from the force of this hurricane storm that came out of nowhere suddenly. A lot of commentators like to say that the Sea of Galilee is prone to these kind of storms. I think that misses the point completely. It's not prone to these kind of storms. This is really unusual and out of the normal. A sudden and severe storm. And isn't life so often like that? Isn't it like that? Sudden, severe storms come into our life, do they not? You're just sitting there in the house and you get a phone call from your doctor. Sorry, I don't normally call you up, but the cat we found something in the CAT scan. Suddenly, out of the blue. Or you're just sitting there and you get a knock on the door. It's the county sheriff. Suddenly, out of the blue, he brings news that you don't want to hear. You're not expecting it. In our situation, when I was a missionary in Egypt, one day I was there for for over a 10-year period. I hoped to be there for 40, 50 years of my life, be buried there, uh, die and be buried there. That was my desire. That's what I thought God had called me to. i have been there for 10 years, and suddenly one uh, spring day in 1997, I go into the big police department downtown in Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo, where all the demonstrations have been, I know that place like the back of my hand, by the way. (laughs) And um, I go to the police department to ask for a re-entry visa. I want to go out to a country and come back in again. And they look at me, and they look at the computer, and look at my passport, and they say, hmm, uh, I think we should arrest you right now. And they made the sign that they're going to arrest me. And unfortunately, I said, well, excuse me, I have uh, these airplane tickets. I'm leaving the country in 48 hours. They said uh, they kept me after hours. They closed down the office, and they said, okay. We'll let you go on the airplane in forty-eight hours, but don't ever come back again. I'd been there for ten years. I had already bought a house. It wasn't much of a house. I paid cash for my house for three three thousand dollars. It was a particle board shack, is what it was. We lived in a particle board shack, not much bigger than this platform, for five years. I had this little boy right there was born in that house. <laughs> and um, but I had to leave it suddenly. Suddenly, that was hard and severe. I had had many friends I had been sharing the gospel with for all these years, and suddenly I was gone. Very painful, very difficult. I call that my three or four box of Kleenex expulsion from Egypt. And then the Lord led us to Jordan. We were in Jordan for a, about a 10-year period, the same thing, sharing the gospel with Arab Muslims. That's what I do. We got a number of police threats over the years. The police uh, informed me of three times of a death threat against my life. They asked me to leave my neighborhood at one point because a fu- an extreme... Uh, Islamic fundamentalist group that makes Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden look like a bunch of wussies. They threatened to kill me. It's called Jamaat Takfir Tahrir, but I don't think that means anything to you guys. So <laughs> but as a result, I had to leave that. But then suddenly, in 2007, they called me into the secret police office three days in a row. And the third day, they never, never let me go home. They arrested me, blindfolded me, submachine guns, and they took me to a jail for a few days. Very painful, very sudden, very severe. All of my hundreds of friends who I'd been sharing the gospel with, I didn't get to say goodbye to a single one of them. It hurt. Very intense. And to make matters worse, this is when I was here last time. The last time I was in your church was when this happened. i had just been really kicked out of that country. I found out in the end I was turned in to the police by most likely my very best friend who I trusted in the world at the time. He, con- he, fall- he faked a conversion and stabbed me in the back. And sold me for money. Very, very painful. Just two days before, I had told my wife, I said, Bev, if you trust anybody in this country, because I know the police were coming after me. I said, if you trust anybody, trust this man. And he's the one who betrayed me. Very severe, very sudden. I think of my wife's cancer that happened on November 5th. We found out she had cancer November 5th. We came home as fast as we could on November 10th and November 19th, nine days later, she went to be with Jesus. When I went to the doctors after she went to be with Jesus, I said, can you please, just please tell me what happened to my wife? We don't even know what she had until a few days, three days before she died, we found out she had lymphoma B cell. I went to the doctor and I said, please tell me what, how, why? I don't even know. I just took her to the hospital for low blood pressure and a high heart rate and from the ER to uh, to the ICU and from the ICU... The doctor told me one, two, three, four things were going wrong and you need to call a chaplain. And I called Brother Landis Epp, who's here with us this, this morning. And I said, Landis, my wife is, please come. My wife is not doing well at 1 o'clock in the morning. Low blood pressure and high heart rate. And from that, at 5 o'clock in the morning, they called me and they said, Scotty, your wife has had an abdominal catastrophe. This was all in about, now, 8, 9, 10 hours. She's gone from low blood pressure to being on a breathing tube to have an abdominal catastrophe. We need emergency surgery or she'll be dead in three hours. I sign the papers. What do I do? Sudden and severe, a few hours later, she went to be with Jesus after numerous heart attacks and after kidney and liver failure and everything else, it all came to an end. Just from low blood pressure and a high heart rate. And I went to talk to the doctors and I said, What what, what was it? They said, Sorry, Scotty, the kind of cancer she had had such exponential growth. The cells were going from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 to 64 so fast. From the moment we discovered it, there was nothing we could do about it, Scotty. Nothing we could do. Sudden and severe. It's also a very specific trial. It was a tailor-made trial from the Lord of the universe for these seven fishermen. At least seven of the twelve disciples were fishermen. What better way to test them than on their own turf in the place that they think they know the best, the Sea of Galilee. They know it. They're fishermen. They know the waves. They know the boats. They know the winds. They know it. And so the timing and the location and the circumstances were all specifically designed by the Lord of the universe for these disciples to teach them lessons. I once did a study in the Bible about how Jesus in, interacted with the individuals in the gospels. I counted 51 individual encounters. I took out the 10 of the lepers. I said 61 before my brother, my boy said to me, well, weren't 10 of them lepers? And I said, actually, you're right. So I took off 10 right off the bat because those 10 got the exact same dealing with uh, Jesus. 51 separate encounters. And at, at the end, my kind of summary observation was that Jesus dealt with 51 individuals, Nicodemus, blind Bartimaeus, the man born blind, and he dealt with them in 51 different ways. It's not a cookie cutter. He has an individual plan for each person. For some of them, he said, he touched them and healed them. For others, he said, go, wash, show yourself to the priests. For others, he spit on the ground, took the spit and made mud and put it on their eyes and he didn't do it to anybody else but that one person individual 51 encounters 51 different ways he dealt with people he knows exactly how to deal with you he knows exactly what he's doing he knows all of the circumstances that come into your life and they've all they've all been father filtered he knows he's sending them to you with a purpose and a plan and he knows how to work on you He knows what you need best to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't get to choose in the Christian life how we will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I chose at one point to say, okay, Lord, I'll be a missionary for 50 years in Egypt. That's not exactly how he chose to use my life. We don't get to choose. We don't get to say, Lord, I'll I'll take the financial problems, but not the cancer problems. We don't get to choose that. We don't get to choose how we will suffer. We don't get to choose where we will suffer. We don't get to choose... Uh, The trials we go through, we can't choose these things. For some people, it'll be marriage issues to the day of their death. For others, it might be infertility crisis. For others, it might be ALS. They didn't expect it. They didn't plan for it. But this is what the Lord's doing. And the Lord has purposes. There's a brother in this room who has ALS. And I grew up with him. And I've seen him just recently. And I would say one simple observation. I knew him as a kid, and now I see him in his wheelchair. But you know what? He knows Jesus more. He trusts in Jesus more. He has a love for Jesus more. God has worked and working in his life more and more and more. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And if he wants to use a wheelchair, he's the sovereign Lord. We're the servants. He can do whatever he wants. If he wants to take my wife, he's the sovereign Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For me, the issue was so much an issue of instability. One of the things I've gone through in my life is instability. When I was young, and a new, young, 22-year-old missionary, moving two or three times in one year, no biggie, I could handle that. That's easy. Single guy, one suitcase, go to Sudan, go to Egypt. I love it. It's great. You get five kids, homeschooling, 20 suitcases. Bev and I had 21 places we called home in 21 years, between six different countries and eight different people groups, it began to rock me. It began to shake me. All oh, my stability. No, Lord, where's my, white, where's my nice little white farmhouse with a white picket fence and 20 years at the same address? Where's that at, God? No. The Lord said, no, I want to use you, Scotty, as a missionary all over the Islamic Middle East. When I first started as a missionary, I thought, Lord, the best way to be a missionary is go to one people group, one place, learn that accent of Arabic, and just stay there as long as I can and get lots of 40, 50-year-old relationships with these people. That's what I thought I should do. That was my missiology. The Lord Jesus Christ has blown my missionary, missiology out of the water. <laughs> he gave me the Arabic language with which I go all over the place to tell Muslims about Jesus. That's what I do. I tell Arab Muslims about Jesus. And I've had some wonderful opportunities, almost, almost, I could almost say basically almost daily opportunities to share huge portions of the gospel, if not the complete gospel, often for hours at a time with Arab Muslims. That's what I do. There's such a hunger in the Islamic Middle East to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is an amazing hunger, much more hunger than here in Clark County. I'm not kidding, much more. They want to hear about Jesus. They're not so concerned about Christianity But a lot of Muslims want to know about Jesus. So this instability has been rough for me over the years. In fact, with the death of my wife came the ultimate test of instability. The ultimate test. And one of the things that I feel the Lord has been telling me time and time and time again is Isaiah 33, 6. And he, and he will be the stability of your times Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. He wants to be the stability of my times, not my house, not my visa that allows me to remain in a country. He wants to be the stability of my times. Well, we've talked about the nature of the storm. I want to talk briefly about the need of these storms. We do need to have storms in our lives. That's why the Lord of the universe orchestrated this storm for these disciples. First Peter one, six through eight says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Hear that word? It's necessary that we are grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand, brothers and sisters, that obedience to God's will doesn't always lead to a path of smooth sailing. It doesn't. The disciples, notice this, the disciples were smack dab in the center of God's will. Right? Get in the boat and go to the other side. They were right where Jesus wanted them to be. They were right in the center. We get this notion in our, in our minds and our hearts in this evangelical Christian worldview that we live in sometimes that if we do everything right and if we have our, a long enough devotion and if we read enough of the Bible and our prayers are long enough that somehow we're going to have a blessed life and all of our kids are going to come out with a great you know, great high degrees from college and all saved. They're all going to marry saved kids. They're all going to have grandkids that are all saved. And you're going to have a nice white little house with a nice little picket fence and two or three car, gar- car garage. And everything's going to be perfect for you. And no problems and no cancer and a lot of money. I don't know. I don't know where these ideas come from. Well, we get these ideas. The disciples were smack dab in the center of God's will in the middle of a great windstorm that was so hard it was knocking them off the rocker. In fact, I've come to learn and understand in my life that the actual presence of problems and trials and hardships in your life is a better indicator that you are in the center of God's will rather than the absence of them. Trials are one of God's main ways of sanctifying us and turning us into the image of Jesus Christ more and more. He uses the word. He uses the brethren. He uses the the spirit. But trials are one of his great things he does. And we've got to remember this, brothers and sisters. In trials, God is not... Out to destroy you, but to develop you and display Himself to you and through you. In trials, God is not out to destroy you, but to develop you and display Himself to you and through you. Um, I can't. I think when I think of that of God revealing Himself to us and through us, immediately it comes to my mind the story of the man born blind in John chapter nine. Where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because he's in a terrible problem of life. He's a man born blind. There's a great suffering here, Jesus. So who did it? And Jesus said, neither. But all this suffering, all this pain that you see in this man born blind is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So clear, so very clear. Just Jesus cuts right to the core of the matter. Here's what it is: it's the reason all this suffering's there is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then I think also this whole concept of trials leading to the glory of God. Trials do lead to, you know, God wants to develop us and display Himself to us and through us. God wants to glorify Himself through our trials. That's his plan. And so in Isaiah 48, 19, it says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. In other words, I haven't put you inside of an actual fireplace. <laughs> I haven't put you in an actual fireplace. I have tri- I ha- Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Okay? In the furnace of affliction. For my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. I'm putting you in the furnace of affliction... For my own sake, for my own sake, to glorify my name, refining you. And my friends, through that, we come to know God's character and his person. We come to know God deeper in, in through these trials that we go through. And this is where missions comes into it. This is where missions comes in. You say, how does that relate to missions? Isaiah forty three ten, You are my witnesses. Okay, that's missions. You hear about witnesses? That's missions, right? You are my witnesses. Declares the Lord and my servant, whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. In order, I've chosen you to be my witness, in order that you may know and understand and believe that I am God. Knowing God, coming to understand what His like, His character, and believing in Him, trusting in Him, that allows us to automatically be a missionary. God does that through us as we come to know the Lord and trust upon Him and lean upon Him and have faith in Him through our trials. That allows us to be a witness to the nations. The best story that the Lord has just so blessed me with that I can share about that is my wife Beverly. My wife Beverly gave her life to be a missionary to the Arab Muslims with me. She wasn't an evangelist out on the streets passing out tracts all the time. She wasn't that kind of a person. She was a very quiet, godly woman who knew the Lord. She loved the Lord. She, walked, she sought to know the Lord. It was her, her great purpose in her life was to, to know the Lord and walk in his will and ways every day. But she wanted to be a missionary to the Arab Muslims. And she was. But the Lord, once again, we don't get to choose where we serve, do we? We don't get to choose how we serve, do we? The Lord took her life at the very end. One of the things that she prayed for besides just the Arab Muslims was she prayed for her family. Because her mom and dad were not saved. And for many years, our whole marriage, she prayed for her mom and dad's salvation. And we had to come home on November 5th. Her dad started coming to our house every single night to see his daughter. Every single night he came. How are you doing? He showed care and concern. But he wasn't saved. And on Friday night, Beverly went to be with Jesus on Monday afternoon. Friday night, he was at my house with Bev. And he said to Bev at 9 o'clock at night as he's getting ready to leave the house, he said, Bev, I hope you get healed. And I'd say, I pray you get healed. That I, I hope you get healed. And Bev Bev turned around and looked at him and said, if God chooses to heal me, I will glorify him. And if God chooses to take me home, I will glorify him. And they hugged and went away. And then Sunday went to the hospital. Ernie couldn't come and see her. By the time Ernie was able to make it, she had already gone to be with Jesus, or was at the last minute. And somehow, I don't know, my son, after my After his mama went to be with Jesus in that hospital waiting room, he said, Baba, I think we should have communion and thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the believers who were gathered there and myself, we had some bread and we had some juice and my pastor, and we said, let's have communion and worship Jesus and thank the Lord in this hospital waiting room. Just moments after Beverly went to be with Jesus. And we did that. And as the bread and the juice came around Ernie, I don't know where I found the wherewithal. I don't honestly know. I said, Ernie, this is communion. This is the Lord's body and the blood of his sacrifice. This is only for followers of Jesus. And he said, I know, Scotty, I know. I gave my life to Jesus Friday night after Beverly told me those things. In other words, God took my wife's prayers for 20-some years, And honored those prayers, answered those prayers abundantly, exceedingly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. And led Ernie to become born again Friday night. Beverly never got to see on this earth the fruit of her prayers. But I know in heaven she knew it because it says the angels rejoice and throw a party when one sinner repents and comes back into the kingdom of God. And so Beverly got to see the party in heaven about her father being Coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one example of how the Lord can just take a life. She didn't witness aggressively, but she just lived her life faithfully before the Lord, knowing and believing God. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Well, now we come to the first question. I must go on much faster. Verse 38 Teacher, do you care that we are perishing? And their question reveals two aspects of their heart. One, it reveals a doubt about God's goodness and love. Do you care? care jesus i wonder do you really love me i wonder are you really good do you care and secondly it reveals doubt about god's control we are perishing can you control this storm can you i mean it's out of control for me i have no control over it and i'm but can you do you care that we're perishing is this your reaction do you have a reaction kind of like that? I must confess, I have a knee jerk reaction to most trials of my life. Whoa, Lord, do you really care for me on this one? I kind of think like that sometimes. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. It's hard to judge these guys, isn't it? Could you put yourself in that situation? It's a pretty overwhelming hurricane storm, and you're dying, and there's no life jackets. It's pretty intense, and Jesus is sleeping. Have you ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever been completely, absolutely, at the end of yourself, overwhelmed? I thank the Lord that it's recorded in Scripture that so many servants of the Lord were overwhelmed completely and totally. Job, in Job chapter 3, you know, we, we know he started off great. He started off great, but as soon as the, the story begins, in Job chapter 3, the beginning of 3, it says, And afterwards, Job, Job opened his mouth. <laughs> That's where the problems begin, right? Job opened his mouth. Afterwards, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, let the day perish in which I was born. Why did I not die at birth? For what I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, I am not quiet, I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. That was his present experience, his present reality was, I'm not at rest, I wish I would be dead. Elijah, after his great victory on Mount Carmel, and he All the prophets of Baal are wiped out. And Baalism is made to be the joke that it really is. And then Jezebel says, If I don't have your head on a platter by tomorrow, then my name isn't Jezebel, Elijah. And the Bible says that Elijah what? He was afraid. The great prophet of God was afraid. And he arose. And he ran for his life. And he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord. Take my life. He was ready to die. He was overwhelmed. David, King David, how long, O Lord, in the Psalms 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Three times he says it. I thought Christians were not supposed to ever come to despair. But here's David saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? He doesn't stay there. But that is his present experience at that moment. A despairing of the soul. There's Jonah and Jeremiah. They both said that death is better to them than life. And there's even Jesus, our Lord, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him and strengthened him because he was weak. And being in anguish, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And in Matthew 27, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we have the disciples here. Their present experience is, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And sometimes, in God's sovereign purposes... God sovereignly throws circumstances into our life that can take even strong Christians to the absolute end of themselves. Strong and weak and all kinds of Christians. Absolutely to the absolute end of themselves. Can go no further. We have to have a place in our understanding and our theology for this, by the way, brothers and sisters. That sometimes we can be smashed down so hard, so overwhelmed, so completely unable, we just cry out, Oh, Lord, please help me. I'm perishing. Paul has a great, a perfect illustration of this. And again, this is also, this is one of the purposes in all this thing. This is one of the purposes, to bring us to the end of ourselves. These disciples were at the end of themselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he shares his end-of-himself experience. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So they experienced something really bad in Asia, some affliction. For we were utterly burdened, utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. They're at the end of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the reason why. We experienced this situation, the sentence of death, In order that, but so that we would not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to learn to rely upon him, to trust in him, to look to him, to lean heavily upon him. That's faith. Again, remember, brothers and sisters, in these trials, God is not out to destroy you, but to develop you and display himself to you and through you. God is always good. And he always cares for you. And one of the things that I've had to learn in my life is I've got to beat into my heart, into my life, my mind, beat into my psyche the promises of God. Let the word of God and the promises of God uh, uh, form my perspective on trials. Let it form my perspective on trials. One of the things I've done over the years is I've memorized what I call one love verse every day of the week. I have seven love verses. Verses in the Bible that tell me that God loves me. Because I need to tell myself every day, at least once, the Lord loves me. That's how I fight. That's how I go forward when I'm kicked out of these countries, kicked out of Egypt, kicked out of Jordan, kicked out of Syria for the gospel. I have to remind myself, in spite of how terrible it looks and how bad I may feel, this I know. That God is for me. God in whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid for what can man do to me. This I know. God's for me. So you open my cell phone, flips open. The thing I see, is my welcome message is this I know. God is for me. Close the book. That's how I got about I got to go. Because my knee-jerk reaction is, Lord, do you love me? So I get these verses in my, you know, Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. I have loved you with an everlasting love all the time, in the good times and in the bad times. Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Wow. The same love the Father has for Jesus is the love that, they have, the, that the Godhead has for me? Imagine that. Me, a sinner. Me, an unworthy s- sinner. And God loves me. He loves me. Wow. So I, I take these, wor- these words from the Bible, and I encourage you, brothers and sisters, get love verses put into your arsenal to prepare you for the days when you will go through trials. Because you will. If necessary, we must pass through various grieving trials. Okay, now we come to the second great thing, the great calm. Here, that is in verse uh, 39. Here, Christ displays his power and delivers his disciples. Verse 39. Teacher, do you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. There was a great calm. Christ displayed his power. And one of the other great results of trials, one of the things that God is doing in trials is he wants to display his power to you and to others. And so what has happens? You have this hurricane force wind and the Lord of the universe stands up and says, Peace be still. Imagine the scene with me. Complete utter chaos. Hurricane force winds. And then in an instant perfectly glass calm seas. Not a ripple or a wave beating against the boat. The storm is gone. Just imagine that power being displayed. Imagine that power. I'm jumping ahead of myself but no wonder they were terrified. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. Jesus is not just a great prophet as the Muslims would have us believe. He is the Lord creator of the universe. When he speaks a word, it's done. Peace be still. He's G- he is Jesus, Lord of the storm. This was the quintessential test of what it means to be deity. Deity. If any king, if Nebuchadnezzar, if anyone could control the waves, then he or she would be deity. Nobody ever could. Nobody ever can. Jesus does, and Jesus did. And then secondly, Christ delivers his disciples. He delivered them. Peace be still. The storm's over, there's a deliverance. Sometimes God does deliver us from the storms of suffering. Other times he sustains us in the storms of suffering. Both ways are miraculous. I really believe that. Both ways are miraculous. When you see a brother or a sister going through a trial and looking to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, leaning upon the Lord, that is a miraculous thing. That's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful You say, wow, God is sustaining you in this trial. And then sometimes after the prayer meeting, we pray for so-and-so's cancer, and the doctor says it's gone. Well, you've been delivered. Praise the Lord. But other times, he keeps you in the trial. Sometimes he calms... The storm outside of us, sometimes it calms the storm inside of us, in our hearts. I think of the times, many times, if you've been on our prayer letter list over the years, you've seen me many times say, please pray for us. We have to go before the authorities again and get a new extension of our visa. They might kick us out. I cannot even tell you how many times we've had to do that. 30, 40, 50 times we've had to do that. And so many times the Lord blessed and answered our prayers and delivered us and gave us a visa to remain in the country sharing the gospel with Muslims. But sometimes he said, that's it. I'm taking you out. So your answer to your prayer request is, no, Scotty. You're coming out of this country now. So I need to move along. We now come to the, oh, yeah, the second call, yeah. The great calm leads us to the second question, which is in verse 40. From Jesus, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I want you to note a couple of things. One, he said this to them. He did not yell it at them. The only self-descriptive words of Jesus in the Bible are, I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's it. I am gentle and lowly of heart. These are the only self-descriptive words of Jesus in the Bible. He's telling us, that's what I'm like. I'm a gentle, lowly of heart man. I'm not going to be standing up here and saying, you stupid disciples, you haven't got it figured out yet. He's not doing that. He said to them, but Christ's question does go to the core of the matter, their fear and their lack of faith. And here we see yet another good result of trials. Trials do, and this is hard to say, have a tendency to reveal sin and weaknesses in our life. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's a good thing for the believer, is it not? Is it a good thing that we seek to keep the Lord's word? It is. So their lack of faith is seen in a couple of things. One, it's seen in their doubting of of His word. Jesus said, let us go across the other side. They had the word of the Lord of the universe, go across the other side. And suddenly they found themselves in a situation where they're doubting it. True faith rests. It depends. It leans heavily on Jesus for salvation and for life. But they doubted his word in the middle of the storm. And then secondly, their fear. This is evidence that they have also doubted his love. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? The natural reaction in trials, again, I've talked about this before, I've mentioned, is that, is that we just sense this uh, sense of fear and the sense that maybe God has rejected us and he doesn't love us anymore. I think, I don't know, I just, I I know that for myself, there are two issues that must be settled in the Christian life if you want to walk with the Lord. Two very important issues. One, you must know that God loves you deeply. You must get to know that, that God loves you deeply. And two, you must know that deeply you love God. And that's what this whole Christian walk in life is about. We love because he first loved us. William Gurnall, the Puritan, and his great work, The Christian in Complete Armor, has a great one-sentence summary of the Christian life. I love it. He says, my one design in life is to love Christ and be loved by Him. I love it. What a great summary of the Christian life. To love Jesus and be loved by Him. You've got to, one of the great things you've got to get built into our lives right now, young people, is to. Ground yourself deeply in the truth of the word of God, that God loves you, not based upon your works of righteousness, but by his grace alone. He loves you. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to go through the storms of life that are going to come and hit you, knowing that he loves you. Jesus' point to them is, if you had faith and trust in me and knowing who I was, you'd be resting and trusting me. Like me, you'd be at peace and rest in the storm. If you knew I loved you, you'd not be afraid. You'd know I care for you. You would know I care for you. Let me come to the third great thing. In verse 41. The third great thing. So after he's calmed the storm, and after he's asked about their fear and their faith, he says, and they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear. Now, Now they are much more afraid of the one in the boat with them than they are of the storm that has just been outside of them. They're terrified. You can see it. The Bible says that when he healed the sick, they were amazed at him. When he cast out demons, they marveled at him. When he turned the water into wine, the disciples believed in him. But now when he stills the storm, they're afraid of him. And wouldn't you be? Wouldn't we be? When we see the power of God revealed in our lives, we're like, wow, is this really the God I serve? Does he really love me this much? Does he really have this much power? Is he really for me and not against me like this? Praise the Lord. What a great God I serve. What, a scare, what, a, what an awesome God I serve. What an awesome God I serve. And this is yet another result of trials. Another result of trials that God sovereignly brings into our life is they leave us very different than we were before. Very different than we were before. They will never forget this day. Never, never forget this day. They'll never forget it. They have a new awareness, a new awareness of Jesus, and this leads to the final question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? So they come into this new, fuller, deeper understanding of who is this Jesus? And you know what? To answer this question, I've thought about this. You know, what's the short answer of this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, there's really not a short answer to this, is there? We actually have a very long answer for it. And we actually need eternity and all of eternity to ascertain and figure out the complete answer to that question. Who is this Jesus? Okay, God's going to give us eternity to understand and answer that question. Who is this Jesus that even the wind and the seas obey him? We have eternity for that. We come to know him in new and deeper ways. His character. His character. His faithfulness his gentleness his person i think of i think of his character one of the things that comes so clearly out to me is his presence with us what an important doctrine of christian theology that jesus christ is with the saints look at the picture right here where's jesus he's in the boat with them he's right there with them the lord of the universe is right there in that terrible storm with them how can i as a how can i be how is how can i a weak nobody person that I am (laughs) with very few skills. I've learned Arabic only by hitting my head against the wall a thousand, thousand times. I am the worst language learner in the world, and yet I can speak Arabic by the grace of God. (laughs) By the grace of God. But who am I? I'm nobody. But the promise of God. Go into all the nations, preaching the gospel. And what's the final summary point there? And I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's that promise of the presence of Jesus Christ. Do not fear, for I am with you, Isaiah 41:10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many times have I quoted that when I've been afraid? And how many times have I been afraid? <laughs> Being a missionary in the Islamic Middle East for twenty some years has put me in many fearful situations. Isaiah 41:10. Do not fear, Scotty, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I'll help you. Surely I'll hold you with my righteous right hand. Get verses like that into your hearts, brothers and sisters. That's how we can do it when we are afraid. Um, we, and I get afraid. I'm, I'm, I get afraid tons of times. Tons of times. Thank the Lord for these promises. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. His presence, his gentleness and kindness to us, to meet us. Even when he does reveal the sin in our life. There's the grace and the mercy and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cover all my sin. So go ahead, Lord, reveal more and more of the wicked ugliness inside of me because your grace is good. You'll cover it and you'll give me grace and you'll give me victory and I can repent of it and turn from it. So go ahead, Lord, please do your work in me. His kindness, his gentleness to us. One of the hardest things that's been so weird for me to explain, back in December, January, February, I was saying... Lord, this hurts so bad, the death of my wife. And yet, somehow, Lord, you're being so good to me, so kind to me. How can this be? How can it be two, one very hard thing and one very nice thing? Lord, you're so good. Well, I need to move on quickly now. His faithfulness to us. I could speak about the, the way the Lord has met us in so many ways, how the Lord provided a wonderful, beautiful minivan straight off the parking lot of Toyota, we just prayed. We said, Lord, we need a van. Someone gave us a brand new van. <laughs> We've got the nicest car out in the parking lot right now. You know, missionaries shouldn't have nice cars. Well, that's not true. <laughs> what about my $130,000 medical bill that I got suddenly? Talking about sudden and severe. <laughs> $130,000 medical bills and I had no insurance. All I knew is I had to apply for application at financial aid. I went to the hospital. I said, you know... I'll pay you 50 bucks for the rest of my life, and my grandkids will also pay you 50 bucks <laughs> for a month, you know. But I, I submitted the papers, and the nurse, the lady, I've got to say this. I'm, I'm going as fast as I can, brothers and sisters. The lady's secretary came to me and said, Scotty, I don't know how, I told her I was a missionary. And she said, I don't know how you can think good of God. I would be angry with God if I were you. And I said, why would I be angry with my only source of hope in this earth? Why would I be angry with my only source of hope in this earth? Well, I submitted my papers. The following day, she calls me, and she goes, Scotty, you've got to get in here right away. I go, okay. I come in, she goes, I have never seen the board meet so fast and so so quickly and so thoroughly. Within two hours, they agreed to a complete 100% coverage of your whole medical bills. The Lord takes care of us. John Newton said, his love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By, faith let, by, by prayer let me wrestle, then he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. You know, I said that, that Mar- Mark seems to be drawing these parallels between Jonah and this account. As I look back, I see so many unique situations. Both Jonah and Jesus were in the boat, Right? Both were in a great storm. In fact, in Jonah, it's the same Greek word, but in Hebrew, a great storm. Both were asleep in the bottom of the boat. Both stories had experienced sailors. In both, the experienced sailors come to the sleeper and try and wake him. In both, the experienced sailors say to the man, we are perishing. In both of them, they both asked the man if he cared. Jonah and Jesus. In both stories, God intervenes miraculously and the sea is instantaneously calmed. In both stories, the sailors are much more afraid after the calming of the storm than they were before the calming of the storm. Do you see the parallels or am I just uh, an idiot? Not, am I just you know, Do you see these? Of course, there's one big difference, right? Jonah was thrown into the water. Big difference. They didn't throw Jesus into the water. Or, or did they? Because you see, brothers and sisters and friends, the only storm that really matters and the only storm that is really dangerous to you is the storm of God's holy and righteous and just wrath against you and your sin. That's it. Your law-breaking, your rebellion, your self-will, your self-worship, your self-righteousness, your God-hating, your lack of God-worship not just all the things that you've done, but the sinner that you are. That is the storm that should scare you to death. That's the storm of God's final, holy, His righteous wrath against your sin. There will be a judgment day coming forward. And it's a much more severe storm than cancer. And it's a much more severe storm than the loss of your wife. And it's a much more severe storm than anything else in this whole room, all of us combined. But Jesus Christ was thrown directly into that storm of God's holy and righteous wrath for sin, as a substitute for sin, for your sin. He suffered God's wrath upon a cross, dying for your sin. And that, brothers and sisters, is the only proof you or I will ever need that Jesus loves you. That's it. That's the ultimate proof. He loves you and he cares about you because he died for you and for your sins. You deserved eternal damnation in hell eternally. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of the storms, the creator of that storm, comes and he dies for you out of love, out of love, because he loves you. He dies for you, and that is the gospel. Jesus not only cares that you're perishing, but he actually loves you to the point of dying for you in that very storm that should scare you to death. Have you cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, save me, I am perishing? With an explanation mark and not a question mark. Have you done that? Have you cried out and said, Lord, save me, I'm perishing? I'm perishing. If not, I beg you. And I plead, you, plead with you as Christ's ambassador, be reconciled to God. Get right with God today. If you do, you will know a peace in your heart over the storm of your sin that should send you to hell. You will know a peace that says, peace be still. Your sins are forgiven. You're accepted in the beloved. You're born again. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this story. We thank you so much for this historical event that took place 2,000 years ago on the Sea of Galilee. Lord, you do bring us to the end of ourselves to teach us many things, not to destroy us, but to develop us and display yourself to us and through us. Lord, it is true, life is hard, but God, you are very good. You have good purposes and good plans and you're not finished with us yet. And Lord, we thank you for all of these things. I pray even now as we sing this final songs that you would do your work in each individual life in this room, that you would strengthen the believers and if there are those who do not know you, that some would give their life to you.